all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack, where we talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in startups. Today, I am talking to a really good friend of mine, a guy who is a multi-time founder, uh, somebody who has been there and done that before and is doing it again. And his name is Corey Kozak, and he is the founder and CEO of Aspireship, which is a marketplace for talent. Originally for sales talent, and I think there's going to be some iterations within that. I think we're going to talk a lot about that. And uh, you know, Corey's a great guy. Um, known him for you know a year or two, a couple of years, and he's got a great story. Um, he's been in the point of you know having an early stage company, selling it, and then kind of building a company within a company, and um, making that scale and understanding how that works, and then doing it again because he's a sadomasochist. Corey, what's up? Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> that was quite the quite the intro, and I don't know how you know me so well. I do. I'm actually blacked out right now. I have no idea what I'm saying. That makes sense. Yeah, I took a lot of Xanax. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> what's going it on? All comes together. Yeah, uh, a lot. It's been quite the year already. Quite the year last year, and wow, what a time we're living in. Yeah, it's like, is, is there, do you ever think there's going to be a time when it's like, we're not fucked up? I mean, like pre 2019, like, hey, things are okay. There's not like this, like, huge intensity in the media regarding politics, regarding um, uh, economic stability around war. Like, what, I mean, do you think we're ever going to kind of come to it like peacetime? Again? Oh, geez. I've just, uh, I've just learned so much over the last couple of years that it makes it really difficult to say yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. which is unfortunate. I know about a whole lot of things that I didn't know about before. And there's a lot of stuff that's pretty broken. Um, that's it true. Seems. That's true. It's like the stuff was there before. We just didn't know about it. Yeah. We didn't know that like there has been no, in, you know, no interest rate, you know, or zero percent interest rates for ten years, way before the um, you know COVID, right? That wasn't a, a system of COVID. That was yeah. a system of the GFC, but nobody nobody remembered to turn that off, or that it really mattered all that much. Right. I mean, I never. I remember reading like financial blogs and stuff like that, Market Watch, and it's like, mm -hmm. why is everybody talking about interest rates all the time? Who cares? <laughs> oh, they're so sensitive, you know. Right. And uh, of course, humbled, then humbled again, then humbled again, mm -hmm. and so here we are. I think what's interesting to me is I think in tech and in venture, we are exposed. We're actually exposed to this a little bit early, but I think a lot of mainstream just has no idea. And it's hitting us early, and it started last year. Um, my guess is that it's going to hit everybody else sooner rather than later, and then they're going to know too. You mean um, like tech feels it first, and then, yeah. right, yeah, and then the rest of it, the, everyone's going to get punched Yeah, in the like face. everybody else is like, oh, yeah, everything's fine, what are you talking about? And then it's like... Especially until, the until consumer, right? Like yeah. in our universe, all we see is Twitter and LinkedIn, and, you know, everything is, you know, on fire, 
even though I still feel like it's still artificially kind of like propped up, like yeah. people just haven't run out of runway yet. <laughs> you know, like it's just like, God, there's a lot of runway still to, yet to be had. Um, but you know what's interesting is, and this is kind of like a redeeming thing that I felt is that, you know, we've been in a recession, meaning we, the tech industry for, you know, 12 plus months of, you know, just decimation in the, in the public markets, um, a, a, basically just a, a rapid shutoff in the private markets. And I was asking a hedge fund guy, I said, so like, wait, 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 where do people put their money right now? <laughs> like, cause I remember back in the day, you know, everyone put their money in oil and gas and like, in like pipelines and shit. And like, you would get a dividend and everyone was excited about that. People were talking about Caterpillar. That was like when I first started trading. And like, I think, I think Jim Cramer was actually like a, a, a reference point of like truth rather than just being like a total buffoon. Right. I'm like, why does everyone hate Jim Cramer now? But anyway, like I, I stopped listening and he was like, Oh, people go back to tech. And I'm like, what do you mean people go back to tech? And he said, well, it's kind of like the less, it's like the least shittiest house on the block because when you look at sectors that are, when there's no growth, the thing that's usually the most oversold is tech. And you'll start seeing money coming in there because oil and gas commodities are, you know, not good. The price of oil goes down. It's all, it's all shitty, right? And so like, it's not going to have like insane growth, but there's going to be a little bit more confidence in there because there's going to be at least some yield. Yeah. And one of my sort of beefs with the system um, of venture is the rules just seem really outdated, mm-hmm. right? The, the power law, the step up and, and rounds where like mm-hmm. you go from raising a pre-seed of 500K to 1.5 million to then in two years, you're at like the $25 million Series A and then $100 million this. And it's like, why do the step-ups have to be so large? Um, I think as a founder, you look at that stuff and even when you're hot and things are really going well, you're going, well, I know I need to fit into this box because this is the next stage. So I'm supposed to be at between this raise and this raise and this valuation and this valuation, no matter where I'm at because nobody's in between. and I wonder if, um, and I'm, you know, just a, just a founder, right? Scout investor. I've done a little bit of angel stuff, no big deal. Um, so I have not dealt with all the things that all of you have dealt with in terms of looking at how to actually generate returns. Um, but it seems to me that if some of these things were just right sized to not so much capital at every stage, uh, you could actually change the way this all goes and actually generate better returns and fund better companies that don't have to rely on insane swings to catapult them to the next step. Yeah. I mean, I believe that. I mean, that's pretty much kind of our underlying thesis is do more with less and, you know, have optionality to sell and not have a binary outcome. Um, you know, I, I think, I think with, there's like, and I don't know if that's right or wrong, because I think there is something, if I was to strongman it, about there's just inherent risk in early stage, no matter how big of a swing you take, right? You can fail, right? I mean, you're dealing with large incumbent punt players, you're unproven, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a level of return needed to make up the losers, right? But how much of that matters, right? <laughs> you know, and like... Like, what is the optimal amount? I mean, so I, you know, I've, you know, again, like I've been doing this for 
seven years and I wouldn't say that like, you know, I have a proven track record. I mean, I have a track record. I don't know if it's repeatable or not. Right. But I'm still, you know, chugging along. And I think that, um, I I'm yet to be convinced rightly or wrongly that power law is the way to, is the way it's supposed to go. Like I can understand it from a coastal perspective. You have X amount of money. You need to have these kinds of things. It needs to be a big idea and you need to keep marking up to keep raising money like that. All that, those incentives are perverted, but that's, they're very clear. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're there. Yeah. Um, but can you do like, can you raise a fund? Maybe it's just the fund structure. I think it might be, you know, yeah. I think, I think it just might be funds. Like the, you know, Investing in companies doesn't have to be through a fund. And even if it is, it doesn't have to be so much. And I understand there's the management fees and all that stuff, and it's all tied to the amounts and, and all of that. But, yeah, I think there's something missing here. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, and there's been many people that have challenged it and gone out and tried things, and then, you know, most of them suck and all that stuff. But I do think it was one of the things that struck me when we first met and you talked about what you're doing and the way you think about it um, is pretty uncommon yeah. in terms of just sort of like, it's almost like a hedge. Yeah, you know? it like, is a hedge. I'm going to pick, I'm going to, I'm going to pick well, yeah. I'm going to do my diligence and I'm, I'm not going to like be looser on it than any VC that's shooting for the multi-billion dollar outcome. But I recognize that I'm, I'm going to have more hits in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, than a lot of them where it's just like, hey, you're either worth $10 million or you're dead to me. Right. You know? And but as a founder, a founder needs to be able to say, okay, but I'm not going to get the market valuation of power law. Sure. <laughs> right? And, like, they have to, like, wrap their head around that. Like, well, my friend got it, but he got it from an LABC. But, so, here's the thing. So, from founder's seat, it doesn't actually mean anything to me, really, unless I'm doing some kind of secondary or something like that on it. Right, because otherwise, it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. You're right. And I got to deal with liquidation preferences and things like that, which I honor, of course, because I care about the investors and I want the investors to be mm -hmm. whole and then some. But if I go and take 20 million bucks from you and my exit isn't large enough to cover that, I walk with zero. Right. And it's like when maybe I would have walked with 5 million or 10 million or 15 Something. million. Right. Right. Something. And so the risk on the founder goes exponential if you're not taking stuff out. And so it's just really interesting. I think there's been a lot of stuff, as you said, the fund structure, fund structure, I think it comes from the top, right? It's like it's designed this way. And so it trickles down to everyone and the tech crunch and everything puts out all the stuff saying like, oh yeah, big valuation, whatever. And so every founder goes, here's what I need to do. This stage, this stage, this stage, I got to get the big valuation. That's like, why do you care about the big valuation? Yeah. Because, you know, you better be worth a billion yeah. or two. Yeah. Or eventually five, someone's got to bring in real cash, you know, or else like you just shot yourself in the foot, taking $25 million that you didn't need when five would have gotten you everywhere you wanted to go. Mm -hmm. Or at least to a point where you can still take more liquidity. Right. Right. And so, um, so it's just really interesting. And so I, I think there's just, I've always felt the mismatch there. And now that ventures feeling the pressure of the, of course, the economy changing so quickly and rates changing and all that stuff, and actually looking at some of these returns and going like, it's actually not that great. No, it's not that great for the price of liquid illiquidity. Yeah. Right. Like we're, I was, I think we were just talking about it on LinkedIn. Yeah. I mean, 
if I was to take a 10-year fund, which is nominally more than 12, right? Sometimes, you know, funds are 15, 20 years, right? Based on all these extensions that they have. Um, you're talking about 2% a year. That's, 10 per, that's 20%. So that's 20%. So basically, for, if I give you a dollar, I'm actually only getting 80% of that invested. And then once I get my money back, so once I get, basically, you have to make 120% of my capital commitment come back to me, then you take 20% profit. So then I get only 80 cents back. Mm-hmm. Is that worth it? In 10 years. In te- yeah, in 10 years. Right. Thank and you. it's like, well, it is right. if the outcome is, is massive. Right. But again, then you look at power law and all that stuff. Right. And it's like, well, it's not really that massive. Or certainly it's not when you look at some of the things, and again, I'm no expert here. I'm just like a student listening mm-hmm. um, to smart people talk, but you look at stuff where like DPI is 1.6X right. in seven, 10 years. And it's like, and that's the average, right? Like that, yeah. that's, that's the, the average. But if you look at like the top decile where I can't get into, you're looking at probably three to four. Yeah. Right. But that's not available to me. What's available to me is every, you know, VC huckster trying to raise a $15 million, $25 million fund that's looking for fifty to $200,000 checks that doesn't have a track record. And I'm supposed to believe because you're an emerging manager. And God forbid I ask you what your DPI is because you might be offended, right? <laughs> you know, and I, I get it. Like smaller funds, you're hungrier. You know, I mean, I don't like the big fat funds where like no one's, no one's doing any work and they're just collecting fees. There's an argument to emerging managers. I'm an emerging manager. But there's something to consistency and track record that I think is also valuable. Yeah. What does Aspireship do? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't come here to talk about that. Um, so this is just us catching up. Yeah. So we should light. Do you have Do you have a cigarette? Like I feel like we should I be smoking. I don't. A cigarette. I don't smoke. Sorry. I don't either. Yeah, I can't. But I would. Can't. I would smoke a cigarette. I can't with hang you. with you. I got four young kids, and oh, you have kids I got too. Kids. You got your Fuck girl em. dad. Yeah. You know, I'm not, sorry. <laughs> okay. So Aspireship was really born to help people with career mobility, right? That's really what it is at the end of the day. Um, I saw a problem where people just got completely blackballed, essentially, um, or typecast based on whatever their past job was, right? It's like if you decided, Mm -hmm. hey, you're not going to be a fund manager anymore, um, and you're going to go off and do something, and you're just like, David, sorry. Like, yeah, you're... You're a finance guy. This or you're a CS person and like, yeah, yeah you want to try sales. Whatever it is. Yeah. And, I, and I mean, this is, it's ubiquitous. It is all over the place. Mm-hmm. This is a problem that's pervasive. I love that typecasting. That is what it is. Yeah, it's yeah. typecasting, right? And it happens at every level with everything. And so I'm like, this is just such bullshit. And like I'd even manage, you know, really top performing people that internally couldn't get promoted, couldn't get a shot for like a sidestep into something. And so I'm like, okay, there's got to be a different way to do this. And all the Udemy courses, the boot camps, they just didn't really do it. So I figured if you could create a platform that could teach somebody how to do a job and not just like generally, but like do a specific type of job targeted at an industry. And we started with the SaaS industry and sales, of course. Um, if you could do that and then have them prove that they could actually be good at it, then you could convince employers that they should hire those people. And so that's effectively what we've done. Um, we've changed the model like 10,000 different times um, with the economy swinging back and forth uh, like crazy over the past few years, which has been our entire lifetime as a business. Um, but effectively, that's what we've been trying to accomplish. And we've done a really, really good job at it. Um, I think we just needed uh, 
needed a little bit more stability in the economy um, so that you could create a plan and execute on it and not have to change every five seconds because <laughs> everyone goes from hiring thousands of people to, well, you right. know, now they're not doing anything. And right. you, like most startups, start in the technology sector because that's where there's early adopters and that's where you can get traction and really, you know, work on the product. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then that changed. Yeah. And so now really um, we have some stuff hasn't even been announced yet, but some stuff uh, come in and announce really, it. well, <laughs> I, I won't. Um, we but, make this a capsule of time <laughs> and then I will, I'll announce it when you tell me to announce it. Okay. So basically we have a, um, we got certified by the Department of Labor um, as a training provider to assist with apprenticeships, which is effectively what we do already. Um, but at the government level, they sort of think of career mobility as an apprentice, right? So like, could you bring somebody on, teach them what they need to know, and then have them grow into the role? Um, and that's effectively what we've done uh, with all these people that have been typecast. Um, and so we got a uh, certification there, which comes with opportunities for funding and things like that. Um, and so it's going to be the an government opportunity. Contract? Mm -hmm. It's going to be an opportunity for us to change the game in terms of how I can go to market and work with employers who right now are like, how do I do more with less? And I'm not spending a penny on any type of recruiting service or any of that kind of stuff, which is kind of where things are at at the moment. Um, and I can offer them a different path, um, both for hiring and also for upskilling existing people. And I'm pairing that with growing through partners. Um, so we're going to start launching programs through partners, partner-created content, which will allow us to go far beyond where we've been in terms of scope because the platform's ready to handle it. And now I have a real like commercial um, angle that's going to work for so all So give me an example of a, of a new customer for you guys. Like that. Oh, sure. Yeah. So currently we serve anybody that's in tech. So tech companies, um, anything from like a large publicly traded company to a startup, really. Um, and with some of the new partner programs that are coming out, they will effectively apply to all industries. So by the time this podcast launches, I don't know when it releases, we will have announced a revenue operations aspireship. And RevOps is thought of as something that's like very deeply ingrained in tech because mm -hmm. it is. But ultimately what we're talking about is, and this is through a partner, um, what we're talking about is here's how you set up HubSpot, right? So it could be for a small business. It could be for anything. It doesn't have to be for tech, right? And so- It's amazing um, that even like the, the landscaping companies that might do like $10 million a year, they don't have a CRM. They don't yeah. know how to manage. They don't know how, who's, how, who's touching those people from a, you know- who the contacts are. Right. And my last company existed because all the small businesses didn't know how to do any of this stuff. So right. we just did it for them, right. um, you know, through software. And so, um, so anyway, so as you start to think about that and then you think about, okay, what are the types of careers people can pursue um, in what industries, what disciplines, how do they get exposure to what they actually are and then how to do them and then how to get into it. Um, and if we have a vehicle, which we do to get, employers to you know adopt it at large scale then we can actually like do the thing that we've been trying to do that we've done in our our little niche for the last couple of years which is sort of change all this typecasting nonsense and help people with potential actually live happy lives and um, be happy at their companies so companies don't have such turnover and lose money all the time so are you are you talking about like 
can you give me an example of like an industry of like the new kind of, you know, at post apprenticeship certification, like what kind of company you would serve and the type of candidates that would typically be typecasted? Is it kind of like a reversal? Are you taking like tech candidates now and they're getting laid off and funneling them into like, you know, the restaurants? Like what, how is it working? So where we're starting, of course, is what we already do. Right. Right. And so these are people, they could be um, a nurse, a teacher, anything stop bartender t- stop taking nurses right any, you any of that stop stuff ta- do we need the nurses well i can i can do the reverse too i yeah. had a conversation about that okay. but um but basically anybody that wants to get out of their line of work and they're like oh i can be good at sales and get their first sales job so we have a lot of those people um, that end up as SERs or you know whatever right we also have people who have done sales in other industries will go in or they've done client services um any of that kind of stuff account management and they'll go in and actually be an account executive or they'll be a customer success manager and that's all like tech company focused tomorrow it could literally be anything i think the first example as i mentioned you know with being RevOps, if you train somebody to figure out how to look at a business and say all right i got to go set up a crm set up all these triggers make sure the systems talk to each other so on and so forth um, they could go into a little company they could go into a big company that's in any type of industry from healthcare to finance to um to tech but wouldn't it make more sense and this is just me to find the industry and then find that person as opposed to trying to shove something that people don't know, like, like they don't know what RevOps is, they don't know what CRM is, right? So trying to push this position into a, um, into like a, a company that doesn't know what it is versus saying like, okay, this, this company needs a home health aid, right? And finding... Sure. A person that wants to get out of being a call center worker and wanting yeah. to be in a healthy so, profession. So I think the answer is that the way in which we work today and will work tomorrow as well uh, is we're all responding to open jobs that companies have. Got right. It. So we're not saying like, hey, you should have a RevOps person, even Got though you it. don't okay. have a RevOps function. We're serving the people that say whether they call it RevOps or that it's like I need a CRM administrator or Salesforce admin or whatever. Yeah. Um, we're like, hey, we have a solution an for that person, or an analytics you know, person. Yeah. Or we can also do the same thing with your existing workforce. So you have people at your company that might want that job, but they haven't been exposed to how to do it or learn it. We can train them and you can help help them move over. Um, and, uh, and so it's really like a holistic approach to solving the problem. I like it. Thank I you. like it. No, that's awesome. And I think a really great type of, um, iteration, um, and having a lot of staying power. So like, what are, um, what are your kind of thoughts from like a capitalization perspective, from a company building perspective over the next, you know, six, nine, 12 months? Yeah. So for me, it's really tricky because, you know, candidly, we, we're really hitting our stride. Like first half of last year was gangbusters. Right. And then it totally went in reverse because all the money was coming from recruiting fees, essentially from companies. And so we're going to have one of those stories where it like looks like the, the huge hockey stick, like going into a cliff. And then there's like <laughs> another one after. Yeah. And Surprise. so, yeah. And so yeah. The, the challenge is, you know, as you've, you've laid out and, you know, some of your stuff you talk about, which is perfectly logical. Um, you know, we've, ra- we haven't raised a lot, but we've raised four million bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we got past the million mark and then we've sort of like hovered around there. And so we're just not at the place where, by the numbers, you would look at it and go, all right, let's go inject yeah. a bunch of money from into a mi- this, yeah, right? From a milestone perspective. Yeah, that's right. right that's right. And so for me, I think, 
what's interesting is historically and, and early last year I was looking at, and I think we talked then and I'm like, yeah, everybody wants me to like take 10 million bucks or whatever. And it's like, I'm just thinking like maybe a few million bucks, mm-hmm. like right. not because I'm not growth oriented or any, you know, any of the talking points around taking money. It's just that like there is a much more efficient way to do this mm-hmm. than just like, let's see how fast we can burn 10 million bucks. Um, and so, um, yeah, so long story short, uh, I don't know what the future holds for capitalization of mm-hmm. the company. Um, and I'm in learning mode, right? So I'm focused on the business. Um, you know, we're not too far from profitability or break even. Um, you know, I'm focused on the business and getting it at a place where, you know, any investor would look at it and be like, yeah, I want like, yeah. those numbers are awesome, which is not where it's at at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's my focus. And then when we get there, then it will become a question of what are the things that are actually possible? Like, can you raise single digit millions at this stage and like have it be fine? Do you have to take 20 million? Who are you taking it from? What are the expectations? Um, all of it's just really interesting. And I, I hear so much talk about the reset and founders being able to accept new valuations and all of that stuff. And it's like, I don't think founders have any idea what the rules of the game are anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. And even if you say like, hey, we've swung to profitability and da, 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 I don't think founders have any understanding of, okay, if I'm at this stage, like, what should I be targeting? What kind of investors should I talk to? Mm-hmm. Like, whatever. So I think well, in fairness, the market's I don't, confused. Yeah, in fairness, I think the VC market's confused too, right? When there's no IPOs, there's, yeah. no, there's nothing to, to guide, Yeah, right? There's no guidance there. Right. And, you know, a lot of people who are new in this business, they don't know, you know, what, you know, margins are, you know, like the rule of 40 and stuff that, you know, we talked about in 2016, but everyone forgot about, yeah. you know. Um, you know, I was talking to a local investor in town and, you know, we're talking about a company that's, you know, four or 500 grand. And, you know, he took a, he took a, a you know, a, not that much money, but took some money on a YC safe and, um, you know, at a, you know, a valuation cap that was like 15 and, you know, and, you know, there's like this like coastal series A and then there's like a normal series A, like a coastal series A, even in like normal, quote unquote, normal time, still 0% interest, but like 2016, 2017, you were still getting like, you know, you know, five to 7 million, you know, on, you know, 25, 30, you know, 40 million bucks. And, you know, that was, you know, you were still a $2 million company. So you're still getting like a 20 X, but like you had a, a much more substance behind you. <laughs> right. In Arizona, you know, or in any other undercapitalized markets, if you're in a, you know, a vertical TAM type scenario, I mean, you're getting seven to 10, bro, like 10 on the high side, right? And it just sucks. I mean, like if you go from 500K to 2 million and you put money at a $15 million valuation and all of a sudden like you're, you, after all that work, you're still at a $15 million valuation. Like that's just a shitty place to be. It It is, but I honestly think that enough founders will go through those moments of realization where they're like, okay, what am I trying to do here? And what do I need in order to do that? And if there's good partners um, to do that, like, I think I'm game for it. Um, But again, I think that there's so many assumptions flying around, 
right? Yeah. Even me, right? And I'm obviously, I'm paying attention, I'm listening. And you, have a, hard, you have a harder issue because you're a marketplace, yeah. right? And so it's like, okay, what's your take rate? You know, like you have two different unit economics, both on the, the supply and the demand side. I mean, yours is really fucking complicated. Yeah, and, and the consistency between them, right? You know, like a lot of, I think part of our challenge uh, from my perspective is that, you know, we built something for the consumer. Like it was for them. It matters to the businesses and the businesses have paid for it, will pay for it, all of that stuff in normal markets. But ultimately the one with the most pain is that consumer. Um, And I think that there's so much around, like you learn being in this business, like you need to be a SaaS company, you needed it, you know, and all of that guides you towards that, that we've spent so much time trying to fit into that, um, that ultimately like the people that are benefiting the most are the ones that don't have the pockets to really pay for it um, in a, in a really material way. Well, right. And in a marketplace scenario, you know, you're not just connecting employers to employees like a job board or, you know, anything like that. You're actually providing value on a training layer that costs money. Yeah. Right. So your take rate could be 20%, even let's say on a good set your marketplace, 30%, right. But you still have this R and D expense, right. That goes into making product that, you know, in turn should bring in EV, right. And create a competitive mode. But in the short term, like, you know, that's a much harder proposition. Yeah. And so, well, for us, we've, we've, been able to do it in a clever way where, um, like our margins on the trainings, like, you know, everything you would want it to be. Okay. Um, it's all on demand, like so much automation in there, like all of that stuff does not cost us a bunch of money to acquire the content or create content of our own. Oh, that's great. All of that stuff. So we've, we've hacked like so much of this (laughs) that you would like, we've really done a lot of the hard stuff. Um, and I think we'll see that play out, you know, as we go and, and scale through, through some of these things. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's been tricky just now. I mean, I think the biggest thing is like, we launched right before COVID Then you have COVID, no one's hiring. All so many people are out of work and then it swings back to great resignation. Mm-hmm. Everyone's hiring. Then it swings back to like tech is imploding. And yeah. then like, yeah, you the, know, yeah, let's talk about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And you know what I mean? Like it's just, it's nuts, man. It's, yeah. it's sentiment and yeah. nothing. I think when you talked to earlier about just alluding about things that, you know, I didn't know about, but just these events have just kind of shine light into it. It's just how emotionally driven and sentiment driven these markets are. Period. Yeah. And we're in a position, both you and I, right? This isn't just you. Like I'm in the position of, okay, I got to find a deal. I got to find the next deal, but that next deal, like I got to price it right or else I'm going to be fucked. And I got to do it where I don't screw the founder, the founder and the employees. They got to be motivated and it's got to be the right time and the right space. And you know they're selling into a market that's buying, right? <laughs> you yeah. know, and there's like a lot of stuff. So we're in a, both in an area of uncertainty, but like, I don't know, maybe that's okay. It is okay. I think that for me, it's like there's the rules for investing on your side are so prescriptive. Everyone's following the same playbook. And to me, the people that are going to like be the breakout winners are the ones that actually have the guts to be like, I see that opportunity right yeah. there and I'm going to take it. Yeah. Like, and this know, is hard, right? Yeah, and I have it's and, tough. Yeah. And I have it's to tough. cut and I have to cut and I have to cut, but you know, that's what it is, right? I have to work harder. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe I'm going to fire my chief of staff. Yeah. Well, and for you, like you got to 
you got to look at it and go, all right, I'm about to do something that I have to explain mm-hmm. to someone right. as to why I did this. Because right. if I'm comparing this business to this business, like the one I'm picking, it's not the prettiest no. by the numbers Correct. or trajectory or, or whatever table. or right. whatever, right. but I'm doing it. And that to me is like the mark of an outstanding investor. Um, very hard to do. Very hard to do. I don't envy the position. Very hard to do. And, and to your point, I've been reading a book called How to Invest. It was just syndicated on a bunch of different financial platforms, but um, it was by the guy from Carlisle. And like he interviews all the, the players, right, in hedge funds and bonds and equities and stuff. And they universally, about halfway through it, everyone's like, you know, the real, the real people that do really well in this business are A, the ones that like are continuously learning. Like you, you can never, there's no mastery. There's no 10,000 hours in this business because things change too quickly, right? <laughs> Period. And the second is um, being able to see stuff that nobody else does yeah, and have courage because you only have to be right over half the time. Like you don't need to be right 100% of the time. Yeah, that's right. And if you, if we lived in a world where it was acceptable to take smaller bets or still, still real money, mm-hmm. no matter what it is, but smaller bets, then they won't be as catastrophic as when you dump $70 million into something <laughs> that ends up being worth nothing. <laughs> right. So, um, you say you do some angel investing. I did. Um, so, um, you know, back before uh, I you know, burned so much of my money in the stock market and, you know, <laughs> running this, uh, this yeah. little startup, um, you know, making a fraction of what I used to make, um, I, uh, I invested in a company called Deep Sentinel. Mm-hmm. Um, I just did it through an angel syndicate. Um, so yeah, I'm not like directly on right. the cap table, but they do have my money and I will get a return. Yeah. <laughs> um, nice. it's a fantastic company. It's run by uh, a guy named Dave Selinger who founded, um, a number of different companies, uh, including Redfin. Um, and it's just this badass home security, um, product that I have, you know, at my house. Oh, so you're, you're a product I'm a guy. customer. Yeah, yeah. You're a customer. Okay, yeah. cool. So I'm a, I'm a customer. Um, so I've done that. And then, um, uh, I am a scout investor for Story Ventures. So, what's Story? Story Ventures—they're my lead investor okay. in Aspireship. Um, there, I consider them just incredible investors. They just made a gut investment um, on me, like before we had product or team or anything. Um, and they're very, very smart. They've picked very well, and their portfolio is pretty awesome. They're out of New York. Uh, they're they're bro- young brothers um, that uh, you know made a name for themselves through a few funds here. Um, and, uh, yeah, so basically I'm allowed to write small checks into companies I believe in. Was that formal, that, um, that relationship? Like when you got in, did they have like a program, like a scouting program? Yeah. So they actually approached me with it. Um, this is new. It was only like, I don't know, three, four, five months ago. Um, they said like, Hey, we're going to do an initial scout program. Like we're, we're asking 10 founders that we know that we, you know, respect, uh, would you want to do it? And I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. Cause you know, someday I may, might be on the other side of the table. Um, you know, my, well, it's not my, like your full-time job, but you, <laughs> you have friends that write that will send you stuff and you look at it. I, I just see stuff organically. And so like, if I want to do like a small check myself, I can. Um, but of course the biggest thing is, you know, I spot something that that story might want to lead. Um, and those are the things that ultimately I, I, I like to do. Program. I need a scout program. Yeah. I need a lot of things. I need a fucking analyst. Well, I just, I mean, <laughs> hey, chat GPT it, right? Chat GPT <laughs> there it. You go. Is Aspireship going to make it? Yeah. Um, I feel like chat GPT is just going to make a bunch of shitty content. Like, it's just going to 
exacerbate worse content that's out. It's like everything, right? It's like even look at what happened with LinkedIn, right? So LinkedIn started where it's like a bunch of smart people started contributing content and whatever. Mm -hmm. And now it's just like anybody in the world is just like spewing stuff out there. And, you you know, still better better than Twitter, though. Still. But yeah, I mean, (laughs) like it's like anything. It it gets um, it gets out of hand for sure. But I am blown away by what's possible. Um, you know, we're already doing things in, in our business. It's pretty um, cool. Utilizing it. Yeah. And especially you get engineers involved, right? Yeah. The API and stuff. Yeah. Like there's <laughs> they, a lot of playing. really cool stuff. I am a bit concerned about what it could mean for the workforce. Um, but, and it's not because there's going to be jobs that are taken up by technology. That's like what we do. Right. It's just the pace of change. Mm. Right. Yeah, so do we need another jerk to the other way? We have so many, so much of that the last uh, few years. And as we can see, things are starting to break. And then you introduce into it like, hey, you actually don't need 10 marketing people. You need two mm-hmm. times everybody. What does that mean? <laughs> right. Yeah. And they got to go do something else. And, you know, if the world's not ready for it, it can be a little painful. And how important to you is building brand as a founder? Because you do. I mean, you've got a really great LinkedIn presence and profile. And, you know, it's, I know it's important to you. So how do you think yeah. about that? So my brand, like, I don't care at all other than for the service of the business. Right. Like, seriously, I really don't. Um, I always tell my wife, like, like I don't want to be fan. I don't want to be like Zuckerberg someday where everybody knows who I am mm-hmm. and everything. Like, that matters not at all to me. Um, company brand, I think is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And that to us, like in the early days, like we were able to just manufacture it where then we had this just shining brand and like the brand loyalty to us. Um, and the way people talk about us has always been so positive. And now it's put us in a position, I believe at least we'll put it to the test where we can go expand into a whole bunch of stuff and it'll just work because <laughs> the brand is there. I think for our size, we have an extraordinarily powerful brand. Yeah, no, I think so. I think so. It's um, definitely talked about too, right? On, in, in a good way um, from people that I know in the business. And I know, I know some people in my portfolio that look to people in your, in your company for marketing and sales, go to market. So, That's awesome. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to see. So- um thank you for coming in my pleasure this was fun it was fun probably not what you expected or maybe it was you know i mean dude i just go you know talk about don't care i mean i just go it's where the good stuff comes (laughs) exactly if i have to start doing work for these things i'm gonna quit uh a couple can questions what's your favorite book founders at work okay best piece of business advice you've ever received it's a big world. Oof, I like it. I like it. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning into the Capital Stack, uh, where we talk to everybody, trying to get a little bit of edge on our own personal journeys of either founding companies, working with teams, or putting a little money to work. Uh, if you like it, please subscribe, tell a friend, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.